Running on late down the outside, she's dashing with this aberration, but suppressor, suppressor for Harry Coffey, the jockey who overcame adversity, wins his first group one. G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 17 of Aussie Talks. And I know it's been a couple of weeks between episodes, but I know today's episode is going to be more than worth the wait. Today, I'm joined by jockey Harry Coffey, who has a total of 722 career wins, including a Group 1 win starting after starting his career in horse racing all the way back in 2011. He's had a ride in the last two Melbourne Cups, including having a ride on Grand Promenade in the most recent Melbourne Cup. He was a jockey on Country Racehorse of the Year, Viandon, for the 2017-2018 season, and he is a man with an incredible story of resilience. Harry, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, mate. Yeah, you've talked me up all right. Made me sound okay then. So, um, yeah, happy to come on and have a chat, and hopefully you got some questions that I can answer truly and make myself sound all right for the show. Oh, brilliant. I'll kill two birds with one stone there. It sounds great. Um, so straight off the bat, basically, I just want to get your thoughts on how how you thought uh, Grand Promenade run, ran in the, the recent Melbourne Cup going back a couple of weeks. Um, just sort of seemed to maybe run out of puff a little bit towards the end. Uh, just want to get your thoughts on how that ride sort of went. Yeah, he was probably a bit disappointing. Um, he finished, I think he finished officially 14th, and we sort of considered him a top eight or ten chance in this year's cup but when it got wet the rain came he doesn't like soft or heavy ground and when that rain fell on the day and it was you know quite uh quite heavy rain right before the race um it it definitely didn't help his chances and we sort of uh lost confidence in where we thought he might finish and sort of the reality set in that he probably wouldn't appreciate the track conditions as uh as the cup got closer but it was awesome to be involved he, he was still honest, like he, he ran 14th. He definitely wasn't out the back, but I reckon if the track was uh, a dry surface, he probably runs uh, a top 10 or uh, top eight sort of race. And, you know, usually that's a pretty good measuring stick of how you've gone in the cup. A lot of people, um, you know, if you can't run top three, top 10 is uh, a massive achievement to, to, to run that sort of race in uh, what's considered Australia's most famous race. Yeah, it certainly is, and I think you just said top three sort of the benchmark on that. And a horse that you rode only six days prior in the Bendigo Cup uh, came home like a champion in high emotion, um, finishing third. How did that sort of feel for you, knowing that you just rode it to a great win in the Bendigo Cup a couple of days prior to sort of see it go so well? Was it sort of a feeling of, damn, that, that would have been great to ride, or is it just feeling good for the horse and the owners? I was pretty happy for the connections. Um, yeah, I was pretty proud of her as well. And a lot of people didn't give her any chance at all in that race because her form lines weren't as traditional as you'd like. Usually Bendigo Cup horses aren't considered major chances in, in a race like the Melbourne Cup at Group 1 level. Um, but I, I had a feeling that she would run a super race if the, if the track got wet and that it did. So she sort of profiled completely opposite to Grand Prom. He needed it dry and she needed it wet and they both needed a lot of luck and um, she had a beautiful run throughout on a soft track. She's a tough mare and she poked in the third. She probably exceeded not only mine but everybody's expectations. I thought when the rain comes she'd be a sneaky chance of running between fifth to eighth. But, uh, yeah, she done an almighty job and ran third and I was really proud of her. Yeah, it would have been nice to run top three in a Melbourne Cup but um, it wasn't meant to be. I can't change that and... Uh, no, I was super proud and, and just wrapped for the connections because they're great people and they've been really good for me. So I uh, I can't shy away from Barrick and then towards their success as well. Certainly, yeah. And 
sort of what was that process like? Because I know um, High Emotion basically had to win that Bendigo Cup and what was very close race uh, in the end to sort of get itself into the Melbourne Cup. Did you or have that guaranteed ride with Grand Promenade and that sort of stopped you from having a possibility to ride uh, with High Emotion or was it just something that was set up weeks and weeks in advance and didn't have any control over who you rode in the end? Um I was sort of just aligned with um, the Karen Maher and David Eustace stable. Um, I had sneaky sort of suspicions pre-Bendigo Cup that I'd end up on Grand Promenade because I um, ride for the owners a lot. And Jai McNeil, who was riding it, got suspended in the week prior to the Bendigo Cup. Um, so when I sort of thought if I win on high emotion in Bendigo Cup, I'll be a chance of riding her. And then Jai got suspended in the, in the Sale Cup and he was – going to ride Grand Prom and then, yeah, the option came for me to get on Grand Prom and I sort of took that opportunity um, up and I didn't really want to go back on that um, mainly because High Emotion had 50 kilos yeah. and Grand Promenade had 53 um, and I walk around about 54. So I, I would have had to lose significant amount of weight at really short notice to ride High Emotion and I sort of considered um, – both horses on a sort of similar sort of chance. So I, I thought I'd elect not to uh, kill myself in the sauna for six days. Yeah, definitely. And we saw with the winner, Gold Troop, in the end was the heaviest horse in the in the field. So it was sort of one of those, obviously, a wet track, a lot of factors and that sort of stuff, um, you know, carrying the most weight. So it was sort of a lot of factors for you to weigh up. Yeah, that's right. He, he was the class horse in the field and that's why he got that weight. Um, and he had a beautiful run throughout and like soft conditions. But then the second and third horse, um, both with really lot uh, featherweight, you know, sort of um, penalties um, and, and coming through Geelong and Bendigo Cups, which isn't your traditional sort of uh, group one glory races leading into the Melbourne Cup. But it was pretty awesome that some of our really recognised country cups in Victoria here were um, a part of the place getters in our most famous race. So it was an interesting cup. Um, a lot were saying that, you know, it wasn't really the strongest one because we didn't have the international force like we usually do, but it was still pretty cool to have a horse like Gold Trip who's been recognised on the world stage and then a Bendigo Cup and Geelong Cup winner just behind it. So that's why the weight scale in the Melbourne Cup is so significant because a horse like High Emotion, even though she didn't get near Gold Trip, she still ran third behind him. Mm. I think you even said in the the post race interview back in the Bendigo Cup that if it was a wet track, um, high emotion would be you know something to to look in into for the Melbourne Cup. And yeah, I think you've basically called that in in how it came home. That's that's yeah, that's right. Um, and I I had a I've had a lot to do with high emotion, and not, I sort of um, uh, Karen Mo and David just said great, you know. Um, trainers of staying horse and I thought if she gets in the race and it's a wet track um, she's going to give her owners something to cheer about at some stage and she exceeded a lot of expectations including myself so we're super proud of her. Mm, definitely um, so jumping back a little bit in the in the time machine I want to go sort of back into your upbringing into into horse racing and you know you come from a family that you know is lives and breeds uh you know country horse racing and that sort of stuff um what was that like growing up in that environment was it you know obviously i'm assuming it brought a fair bit of benefits as well but was there also an added sense of pressure when you started to you know become a jockey and start having those you know consistent starts where you came from you know a name that's synonymous with country horse racing 
Um, yeah, so my father's a horse trainer here in Swan Hill. I live in Swan Hill still. Um, and my mum is from a farming background at a place called Berrawillick, which is 40 minutes from here. And my dad was originally from a place called Birchip. Um, and they're about 20 minute drive apart, just farming towns. My father's a, a from a, a horsing family that have had horses around their um, family their whole lives. And he is one of 10. So he's got uh, nine siblings and he's the youngest. So I've got a heap of cousins. Um, none of them are jockeys, but all have had horses in their life at some stage. And we've just always grown up um, having ponies and, and riding not only your own pony, but your brother's pony or your cousin's pony or your uncle lends you a pony to go on a ride when you're visiting, visiting them. And there's just been horses everywhere. And to the point that me and my brother learnt to ride um, when we were toddlers and they used to have a polypipe holding us into the saddle so that we wouldn't fall off because um, it was easier to have the polypipe holding us in the saddle rather than um, our dads and uncles having to hold us in while they were riding as well. So my brother actually fell asleep on a horse and the pipe held him in the saddle while we walked along. So that's how young we were when we were on horses. And then, um, yeah, dad's trained horses uh, since I was born. He was a farrier before that. My mother's not really big on the horse uh, caper. Um, she's sort of only into the racing game because um, she, you know, fell in love with dad and then I've become really involved. So now she's even more involved. Um, so she probably got stuck with the rough end of the stick there getting caught in the racing game. But, um, yeah, so I started riding track work while going to school just because I rode ponies and then it's sort of leading to racehorses. And I stayed little and light while growing up, played football, did everything normally at school. And then at the uh, age of 14, I, I started to ride track work, got a feel for it, had a gallop, didn't mind it, wasn't petrified. Um, it all sort of, you know, went from there. Dad sort of said that he thought um, I'd be capable of maybe riding in a race. So we started riding in, you know, practice races, which are called jump outs, got around in them safely. And then we approached race in Victoria to look at getting me into the apprentice school and um, that eventuated and I had my first race ride when I was uh, 15. So I was pretty young when that happened um, and you don't usually start that young, especially now. They usually wait um, to hold them off. But, yeah, it was 11 years ago um, when I started riding. So I was 15, still in school. I was about in year nine and, um, yeah, it was, pretty, it was pretty cool to be in school and then on weekends riding in races um, at a, at a, a very high and prof professional standard. So that's how it all sort of come about. No real hope for me being um, born into a racing family and um, haven't looked back and nor has Dad. We've become a, a great team and he trains him and I ride him and I do a lot of freelancing as well for other trainers. So um, I've been very lucky. There's been no pressure. Um, mum and dad are very laid back sort of people and um, if I didn't want to do it there was no expectations for me to do it it was just do your best and see how you go and a bit like high emotion we sort of expect <laughs> it went on and done a little bit better than what everybody thought yeah it's obviously a very very good partnership uh, that you've had there so that's very good um so going back to you know being 15 and having your first start if you can if you can remember what were the nerves like were you a bit calm and collected or you sort of going, geez, I'm young here, everyone around me is a, a little bit older here and was there a sort of sense of, geez, am I ready for this? Yeah, I was, no, probably I like to think myself as a pretty calm and relaxed 
person, but that day I wasn't. It was, I had my first ride at a place called Menangatang, um, and they, they race there once a year. It's an hour north of Swan Hill, so you always get a big crowd um, from the local community. And um, I ran second, beating the nose, and it happened all very quickly. That By the time the gates opened, I thought about where I was. We are at the winning posts, and never heard such a loud uh, roar for a horse running second with um, all the locals and that cheering me on. And as I said, Dad's a family of um, the youngest of 10. We had all our family there and also a lot of mum's family. And, yeah, it was a pretty big show. So, unfortunately, we didn't win, but uh, it was a great first day and it's probably, yeah, the most nervous I've ever gotten on a racetrack. Yeah, well, I can imagine that uh, finish second and only lose by nose. That's uh, not a bad start. That, yeah, that, that is right. It wasn't a bad start and um, improved a fair bit from then. I didn't look very good on him. I was only a little kid and wasn't very strong and went very wide and, yeah, the horse probably should have won. But um, we've learned a lot from then, so it's uh, it's been good. And, I've uh, yeah, I've been lucky enough that I had those sort of places, Menangatang, Witchy Proof, um, Carathul, Moolamine, that's where I, I really learnt my craft. And those sort of places nobody's watching. It's not broadcasting on TV and that was the best thing about being apprenticed to Dad. He allowed me to go to them places and we had the right horses for me to learn what I was doing without um, the media scrutiny of uh, seeing me and watching me um, stuff it up. And I, I had a lot of race rides before I sort of uh, – people became aware of where I was at and I sort of probably had, you know, 50 race rides hidden without anyone watching before uh, I was exposed to the media because it, it, the media and other trainers, because as nice as they can be, sometimes uh, if you make a mistake when you're young and you should be forgiven, sometimes um, you get tarnished with the wrong brush early and, um, yeah, you, you just sort of don't kick on the way you can at a young age. So uh, it was the right thing by um, Dad to look after me and put me out into the, the bush and let me learn to ride without anyone watching. Yeah, well, 100%. You get away from not behind closed doors, as if you will, but obviously not with the broadcast. You would dodge, you know, any sort of criticism and, you know, things that may stick with you, especially when you're at a young age. Yeah, that's right. It's really hard um, for any rider at any age to handle um, scrutiny and criticism and, and you've got to keep trainers happy, owners happy, get riding the horse right, understand your horse and then also have confidence in yourself and then put all that aside. Then there's the media talking about your performance and the horse's performance and what could have went better, what could have went wrong for the horse to perform better and there's people betting on it. So there's a lot that can be uh, criticised. A lot of scrutiny can come with it and when you're only young and you're trying to be a professional sports person against the very best, uh, it, it, it can be a dangerous world. Um, but, yeah, I was lucky enough the whole way through, not only just from the beginning but even in the years that I started to ride in Melbourne, still when I was immature, that I had the right people around me to help me get through. Uh, if I did make any stuff up, some people uh, had a bit of a crack at me. Lovely. Oh, it's great to have that great support base around you. Um, so next question I've got is obviously you're pretty big in the, the country racing scene um, and obviously you've had a lot of, of rides at, you know, your premier tracks, Flemington, that sort of stuff. Um, what would you say besides obviously the crowd and maybe the the um, ability of the horses, what would you say is the biggest difference between those country horse races um, compared to those, you know, inner city sort of races? Is it sort of the feel of the community a little bit more behind you or is it something else? 
Um, I, I wouldn't say the community has too much to do on a country cup day. Like if you go to a Swan Hill Cup or a Mildura Cup and a Chuka Cup, there's a real community atmosphere because the crowds there they're big. But a lot of the days I'm riding, like I nearly ride. I'd ride five days of the seven days per week. Four of them would be at country areas. And you might go to Casson on a Monday and there's only, you know, 50 people there. Um, all local people that you've seen at the last meeting you were there. So there's not a lot of difference. It's just a lot quieter. The country cup days where I'm talking about where there's big crowds, that's awesome. Um, a lot of people having a good time. But you don't really need to overthink it. A lot of them aren't even really watching. They're just drinking and having fun with their friends. But then when you go to the city races, you get the crowd and you get the people that are having fun and you get the genuine punter um, and you're riding better stock. The, the riders that you're riding against are making decisions quicker. It's almost just like any sport. Um, the higher the level, the better the product. And um, you have to you have to compete with that to be a part of the product. So um the atmosphere, I probably prefer the laid-back country atmosphere on a Monday or a Tuesday when not many is there and it's just the local committee or the, the local people that keep those small clubs going. Country Cup days are great. It's a bit of a pain when you're trying to get out after the last race and you haven't ridden a winner and there's a booze bus pulled up testing people for drink driving and all that sort of stuff. All you want to do is get home. Um but, yeah, riding in the big days on the spring carnival is the pinnacle of our sport. And even though I love the Great Country Cup, um, it's it's a pretty amazing feeling when you're sitting in the barrier at Flemington and you can hear the helicopter with the, uh, you know, the aerial vision um, broadcasting live into everyone's rooms. You get that helicopter sort of comes that little bit lower and there's all the big, loud crowd and the, the, the chopper hovering and um, you think, yeah, this is what the uh, the big stuff is. Definitely, that uh, definitely would put a few tingles down the spine having that one, uh, having experienced that one. Especially when you're on a fast one. When you're on a slow one, it's a little bit more enjoyable, but uh, you sort of get you get around safely is the, the the outcome. But when you're on a fast one, you uh, you know everyone's watching and you've and you've got to ride it good. So it's a good feeling, but yeah, there's more nerves that come with that, and um, it's pretty awesome when you you happen to have a win on those big days as well, and you hear the crowd. Definitely. Um, so, so how I was able to actually get in contact with you is my dad was a minority owner in Viandon, the 2017-2018 Country Racehorse of the Year. Um, you know, he won, he won the Nil Cup several times, the Witchy Proof Cup. You were the main jockey um, for that horse. Sort of just sort of speak about your relationship with that horse and obviously winning an amazing award, Country Racehorse of the Year. Sort of describe what that horse, uh, what Viandon meant to you and how good he was. Yeah, so he probably, like, he definitely wouldn't be um, one of the best horses that I've been able to ride, but he'd be one of the horses I've had the most fun on. Um, and the fact that my dad trained him and that there's no better feeling than riding winners um, for your father when you train them. There's, you know, you can ride winners anywhere, but when you work at something together and you see how hard, Someone like my dad has his whole life working with horses to get something out of it. When you end up riding them and a plan comes off in a race that's a major race for the horse involved, not every horse is as major race as a group one because they actually don't have the ability to be in a group one. So when you get a horse, you have to choose the right races for it to get in and, and aim them at that. And dad did that with Voyan and on so many occasions he just went to these country cups and the horse performed and butted up every time and I was fortunate enough to uh, do the steering and he got into a real zone where it was sort of just turn up, 
and uh, steering the right way and you'd get the job done. And it was a pretty cool feeling to be able to do that with um, a horse that I'd nearly get up and see every morning and ride in track work and um, to, to see the joy that Dad would get with me riding the horse. And then also, you know, you'd have a lot of family and friends in the horse and they'd be all there and we'd all go to that, you know, the country scene and um, you know, and have a great day out. And another thing that was really special about him was the first Witchy Proof Cup that he won was um, my dad's first Witchy Proof Cup and, and he'd been trying to win that race for 25 years. Um, and he is from a town called Birchett, which is half an hour from Witchy Proof. Um and Birchip don't have a racetrack. So that, so Birchip's hometown racetrack would be like Witchy Proof. Um, so when Viannan won the Witchy Proof Cup, um, it was a pretty special day because Dad's been trying to do that pretty much his whole training career. And it was pretty awesome that I could be a part of it because he's had a lot of runners that um, I haven't been able to ride. So when we do get a win, it's ex- extra special. That would be an absolutely brilliant feeling. Um, so I just want to touch on now and, um, you know, it's obviously something that, uh, is a big part of your life and shows an incredible resilience, um, to overcome it for, for those listeners who don't know, Harry has cystic fibrosis, uh, which according to an article, which I read, um, maybe you can verify this. You have to take 20 to 30 pills just to keep those bodily functions up, um, on a daily basis. If you're comfortable speaking about that, um, how is that experience of having CF, you know, affected your life and how has it acted as, you know, having, you know, some strains on potentially being a jockey? Yeah, so um, CFs, um, yeah, it, it's who I am. And when you ask, am I comfortable about it? Um, as a young kid growing up, there was no shying away from that I had CF. Um, and even though it is a, 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 a condition that can affect your life um, pretty dramatically, my mother and father never, ever let me have the mentality that that was to hold me back. I went to school normally, I played footy normally and there was no Harry, you can't do that. It was always if you think you can do it, go and have a go. Um, And I think that's really led into me as a young adult as well and also being a jockey. It's if I want to do something, I go have have a go at it and if I can do it, well, then I keep doing it. Um, And I I sort of haven't found anything yet that CF has held me back from. Um, I mightn't be as strong, I mightn't be as fit as some of the other jockeys but um, that that's the way the world is. We can't all be the same and we all have little problems. But um, with my CF, it's just a little bit bigger problem that you have to wake up and handle every day. Um, I was born with cystic fibrosis, um, so I've had it for 27 years because I'm 27 and you don't know any different. It's not like, you know, you went through your teenage years normal and then you woke up one day and something um, change. So in one sense, people may say, oh, I've had it my whole life and, you know, it's a big negative. But I actually consider that a positive because I don't know any different. It's who I am. I don't know what it was like before CF. So this is who I am. you got to get on with it because, yeah, I, di- I didn't know what it would be like not to be short of breath or what it would be like not to take tablets. It's it's the way I've been my whole life. So um, in, a, in a sense, to, to be born with it, um, you know, it doesn't work against you in a way. You, you've just got to get on with it and you know that's who you are and that's what you are. And when I started riding um, at age 15, I did have a little bit of trouble with embracing um, cystic fibrosis um, because I wanted to be a good jockey and I wanted to be seen as a good jockey. And a lot of people spoke about me 
because I had CF, not because I was a rider. Um, and, and I wanted to be known um, not for the jockey with CF. I just wanted to be known as the jockey. But as I've become older and um, matured, I've understood that I can still be known as a good jockey and I can still talk about cystic fibrosis freely as well. And I have to do that to create awareness um, for CF and let people know out there it's not doom and gloom. You can um, still get out there and have a crack, follow your dreams, and it doesn't even have to be if you've got CF. It can be anything um, in life that's going wrong for you in the current time or any person out there that's born with, um, you know, a condition that they might consider can hold them back um, to not think like that and just, and just still have a go because you never know what might happen. So as I've matured, I've learned that speaking about that helps other people and I've also um, come to understand that it would have been an extremely scary time for um, my mum and dad when I was first born to find out that their perfect little son that's come out um, has this disease that they've never heard of and they're getting told how bad it can be and how it can dramatically um, affect their life expand and I just think to myself, well, there'd be parents out there currently who are going through that same stage and if they can read an article about me or watch me win a race and hear that I have cystic fibrosis, well, when they look at their little baby, they uh, they have some hope. So that's my mentality now and when you're young, you sort of don't think about that sort of stuff but as I said, as I've matured, I've become to understand that you've got to get out there and you've got to talk about it and uh, it might help someone else. Yeah, it's an incredible way of, of thinking, mate, and it's truly uh, an inspiration. And doing a bit of research before this podcast, I saw, you know, plenty of articles of you sort of speaking about how that, you know, you can show that you even if you have CF, you know, you can still achieve, you know, the, these great things and you can't, you know, you can't let it hold you back um, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's right. And um, so, yes, yeah, CF is is a terrible um, condition and I've been really lucky that I've stayed extremely healthy and there's people out there with CF that haven't had the luck that I've had um, and they've been struck down by certain infections that have affected them long term and um, there's also been people that are my age that have unfortunately lost their life because of the cruel condition. Um, so I'm not saying that, oh, if you get out there and have a crack, you'll get by. You know, everyone's dealt with different luck and I've been so fortunate that, um, I've had so much good luck and I'm really understanding of that. But I just think it's important to know that, um, you know, you can't get down in the slumps. You have to understand that there is a chance that you might be able to get out and follow your dreams. And um, if you think like that, you're a lot more chance of doing it. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty um, rough condition. It affects your lungs and it affects your digestive system and you, you take a heap of tablets and antibiotics to help your body keep going. But we're in an amazing world that health and medicine and science continues to develop. And in the last three years, the um, my medication intake is halved because of um, genetic modifiers that the doctors and scientists have come up with. Um, so we're in an amazing um, time in, in, in medication. And not only is it helping um, my riding career, but it's making life a lot easier too. So I'm extremely fortunate and doctors will speak to you about medication and when, when you get explained a new drug that's coming out, um, my doctor said it's a bit like an iPhone. There will always be a, uh, an update that you got to hook in and make the phone better. So um, we're, in a, we're in an amazing world that's going to continue to get better and um, I'm lucky that I was, you know, born in 1995 and not in, uh, you know, the 80s or 70s because they, they didn't have the medication that we've got today. 
No, that's definitely true. The advancements have been huge, and yeah, it, it is great to hear you got such a you know a positive outlook on something that is you know is terrible. But I suppose, like you said, having a positive outlook on it is definitely the way to go. That's right, and it's for anyone. It doesn't you don't have to just be cystic fibrosis. It can be anything. Um, when I was uh, asking my doctor when I was fourteen whether I could be a jockey, he said. Um, look, it's probably not the ideal occupation for someone that needs to, um, you know, have plenty of nutrition in them is a, is a jockey who, who'd be trying to lose weight all the time. But if I sit here now and tell you, you can't, you know, follow your dreams, well, you're not going to want to get out of, out of bed of the morning. But, um, he said, if you get out of bed of the morning to follow your dreams, you're going to have to be healthy. So, uh, it's a fine line. And, um, currently, and luckily enough, I'm uh, able to, to do it at the moment. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I'll get on now to to some of the the viewer questions that have been sent through. Um, so I think you just touched on it then. So how tough is that dieting, uh, you know, to keep such a low weight? And I think you said even a bit before that you didn't really want to hop in the sauna for eighteen hours to get down to high emotions weight. So along with the diet, what other measures do you have to sort of keep weight down to to make those cuts that you need to? So. I'm extremely lucky. I'm a natural lightweight, so I walk around about 54 or 55 kilos where a lot of the other jockeys will walk around 50 out of 59. Um, if I need to lose weight suddenly, you just cut sugar um, and carbs out and, and do exercising, but I'm pretty lazy. Um, I, 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 I'm not very good at losing weight and um, the longer you leave the dieting, well, then the closer it gets to the race and the more suddenly you'll have to lose weight and that's when your saunas and that come in. So um, if I wake up a little bit heavy, and when I say a little bit heavy, a kilo to a kilo and a half heavier than what my riding weight on the day is, I'll lose a kilo in the sauna or spa. Um, and they have saunas or spas at the metropolitan tracks, not the country tracks. Um, and I'll jump in the sauna for 15 minutes and then sit in the spa for you know, 45, do an hour, then you get out, check your weight, hope that you've lost the required amount. You might then have a little rest and then jump back in if you need to lose more. So that's sort of how you lose weight. Why I don't have to do that a lot is because of cystic fibrosis. I should be a lot bigger and stronger than what I am. My brother, who's younger than me, is a, a tall, strong, completely different build to me. But because I had CF growing up, and I had a lot of nutrition going towards fighting infections and keeping me healthy and well, it didn't go into my growth and development, the normal nutrition that you get when you're growing up, and that's why I stayed small and light. So if I didn't have cystic fibrosis, um, I probably wouldn't have been a jockey because I wouldn't have been light enough to do so because, yeah, um, my brother doesn't have CF and, um, yeah, he definitely can't be a jockey. So... That's sort of my story with losing weight and that. Um, when I do have to do it, um, I'm not very good at it, but I'm lucky enough that uh, I've stayed small and light, and that's because of uh, growing up with cystic fibrosis kept me that way. Yep. Yeah, it's a positive of it if, if you look at it that way because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> keeping the weight down. Um, so i got a very, very specific question here that one of my mates sent through. So what is that feeling when you storm home from a few lengths back just to pit the leader right on right at the end? Yeah, everyone's different. I love getting back and storming late. It's one of my favourite things to do. 
where some people love leading and and getting away and ducking off. Um, also love sitting like you know midfield and having to thread your way through between runners and looking pretty and then getting right out and getting them on the line. So to answer your mate's question, I love that feeling. I love the thought of people thinking oh, he's not going to get out, and then you do get out and uh, you have everyone sort of on their edge. Horse trainers hate it. They hate riding like that. They like their horses to be out, plenty of room, and uh, make a good thing of it. But uh, I think there's no better uh, feeling or watch or look than a, than a horse looking like it's going to be unlucky and then a slight gap coming, and uh, you get through and only get there at the last minute, and they, um, they're storming and they're really strong late. I, I yeah, I love that feeling and it's sort of almost uh, there's relief, there's adrenaline, there's also excitement as well. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, another one I got here is how does your preparation change between the big races to like the Melbourne Cup to, you know, a, a, just a, a normal race, if you will? Does it is there extra nerves? Is there, you know, something different for breakfast? Is it Or is it literally just routine, routine, routine? You've got to try and keep it routine um, because you've just got to try and the reason you're on the horse is because the rider that you are and the rider that you are is the rider that you were yesterday in the normal race you were riding in. So you've got to try and stay as normal as you can. Talking about breakfast, um, yeah, I'd probably try to have the same sort of setup every day. I wake up, have a coffee, then check um, your weight um, because a lot can determine what you have the morning of depending on your weight and what weight the horses have got that you're riding. Um, and then, yeah, you go from there, you have a look over the form. You would have done the form uh, probably the day before and then you review it, you have a look at the scratchings. Um, but you try to keep it pretty simple. Even though you're in a big race and you should be more committed and, and more excited, um, if you let that happen and overwhelm you, you can make decisions that are uncharacteristic. You've got to remember that you're on the horse for the rider you are and the rider you are is who you were yesterday and, and and your usual calm, normal self is the reason you're on the horse. So that's sort of the mentality I try to have. Um, it's a pretty cliche sort of answer, but I think that's what most sports people sort of try to have is you've got to treat it normally and um, hope that your natural instincts under pressure are what you would normally be when uh, the pressure is not as high. Definitely, definitely. So I've got two more questions here for you. So one here is um, there's been a bit of, especially this spring carnival, there was a lot of talk in the media um, and by people online saying there was sort of an oversaturation of, um, you know, gambling and that sort of stuff, uh, advertisements in the spring carnival uh, season. I just like to get your thoughts on that. Does it, in your way, does it take away from, you know, the pleasure of, you know, riding horses and, you know, watching it just because it's so focused on gambling or do you think it sort of adds another spectacle uh, to the sport? Uh, there's two sides to it. Yeah, you, you can go with the theory that we should be, you know, it's purely for the horse and that it's the love of the horse, um, which, you know, we're massive um, advocates for and racing Victoria and racing all over Australia are great with their animal welfare, but that we should be watching racing and enjoying racing purely because of the, you know, the natural sport that it is. But the sport is becoming so big and so successful because of the money that's coming through it on an industry level, and that is because of the punt. So even though it is thrown in our faces and it's really quite annoying sometimes, it is what's making our industry so strong and so great. So it is a it is a balancing act. We don't want to overdo it. Um, we don't want to be throwing it down 
our kids' faces because at the end of the day when it's their turn to have a bet and they're old enough too, they, they probably won't enjoy just a, a horse race that's exciting. They'll be purely just watching it for the fact that oh, did my horse win or lose. Um, but in saying that, our industry won't continue to go forward if we don't continue to promote it in a sense of how it makes money and um, that's our biggest asset is uh, people wanting to bet on us. So it's a fine line. Um, I think we need to continue to celebrate um, the participants. Um, We've got some of the most amazing jockeys, horses and trainers all over the world. Um, And when horses and um, jockeys come from overseas, we celebrate them. But we've got some of the best you can find worldwide um, in Australia and people like um, James McDonald, Damien Oliver, James Cummings, um, Team Ma, Gay Waterhouse, you know, these people, they're amazing for our sport and they need to be, um, there needs to be advertising about them. Um, but also we can't forget the uh, the turnover and the punt and what puts the money into the industry as well. So it's a fine line. Um, I can see what the question's about. Um I'm not allowed to bet because I'm a jockey, so it, it's probably I see them ads and it just goes straight over my head because you know, I can't do it anyway. But uh, I can see if I was allowed to bet and it was put in front of you all the time, you uh, you definitely would be looking forward to having a bet rather than just sitting back and thinking, geez, this is amazing that these six wait-for-age horses are all up against each other, which we've seen regularly over the spring carnival with um, – Animo and Alligator Bud and those horses regularly taking on each other. It was um, it was a great spring carnival and yeah, I, I hope people continue to to love the sport for the great horses and participants that's in it. And uh, you know, having a bet is come second and it keeps funding us as well. Definitely, I think it's such a balanced way to look at it. Um, so I've just realised that my Zoom because I haven't paid for the premium, I've got less than one minute here. <laughs> so I'll give you a rapid fire Wrap last rapid fire last question. What is your favourite type of coffee? Uh, skin latte. Perfect. Well, I'm glad my mate sent that one through. Clearly read your last name but didn't read the spelling. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll quickly wrap this up. Um, thanks very much for taking time out of your your Wednesday afternoon, Harry. Uh, it was great to talk to you. Very uh, in depth. You know you. Basically, you know, we said at the thing at the start, 20 to 25-minute conversation It's nearly gone for 40. So, Ollie, thank you very much for that, mate, and uh, you're welcome back on any time. Good on you. Happy days. Easy, mate, and just before they cut us off as well. So brilliant timing. Thanks again, and uh, all the listeners, I'll see you next time.